Brad Alcoholic. Uh, gives me great pleasure to introduce Scott M. I don't know anyone who has served uh, AA as much as Scott has on every level you can think of. Justin, when I first met him, uh, he was the area chair for two years, and uh, that, that, that uh, is a very, very busy position to uh, coordinate all that Area 10 service activities. Uh, prior to that, he was the Area 10 treasurer, and prior to that, he was uh, uh, chair of archives at Area 10. Since he was the chair, he has uh, been the alternate delegate, and all these are two-year commitments, the alternate delegate to the General Service Conference, and then in uh, 1919 and 1920, he uh, served our panel in this region as our delegate to the General Service Conference, which is an incredible commitment and an incredible experience, very important. Uh, Scott's sobriety date is January 31st, 2004. His home group is Noon Beginnings in Lakewood. And with that, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Scott M. So, yeah, I'm Scott, and I'm an alcoholic, and a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and so, yeah, thanks for the introduction, Brett. Uh, you know, it's part of that deal of service in AA, right? You keep saying yes, and they keep giving you stuff to do. <laughs> and so, that's, that's how that all happened. Uh, I don't think there's any big miracle to that. So, I've been asked to talk tonight about the 12th step. Uh, specifically, you know, focusing on practicing these principles in all of our affairs. And so, it's a great topic. Um, and I guess what I'd like to do to start out a little bit is to give you a little bit of background about me, right? You know, because we come into AA, we get ourselves all cleaned up, and then all of a sudden, you know, at least for myself, I look at these people and I say, they were never alcoholic. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, they, you know, what, what did they do? You know, they look too nice now, you know, and that's part of that miracle that we get. But so just a little bit of background. I was born and raised in Arvada, Colorado. I uh, lived there my whole life. Um, you know, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic family. In fact, my dad got sober a couple of years before I was born and died with over 50 years of sobriety. Um, so I never saw him take a drink. And we didn't have an alcoholic family, although I can tell you that uh, that didn't matter to me because I learned how to drink anyway. Um, but the, um, you know, did this typical stuff, went to college, got a, a degree in accounting, passed the CPA exam, went on to law school, passed the bar exam, started practicing law, and then the wheels started to come off, right, just like it happens to everybody else. And I don't need to go into a long drunkologue, but I will tell you that at the end of my drinking, uh, I had been disbarred as a lawyer because I was stealing money from my clients to pay for my drinking and my drugs. My wife and kids had left me, and I no longer had contact with them. My cars had been repossessed. My house had been foreclosed on. Um, at the end of my drinking, I was sleeping on a pad in a friend's basement, drinking about a handle of vodka a day, um, and just wishing that I would die from drinking because I didn't quite have the courage to commit suicide. So the prayers that I had with God at that time were, let me go. Just let this end. Fortunately, three friends from the program you know, came and pulled me out of that basement and took me off to a treatment center that was based in the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there, 
for the first time, I met somebody who was properly armed with the facts about this disease. And he told me his story, and he told me how he found recovery, and I haven't had a drink since from that day forward. And that's the amazing thing, right? Is that one alcoholic talking to another. Um, I don't know. You know, I'd, I had done treatment off and on and had had some of those, you know, interventions with, you know, different medical professionals and stuff. But if they're not alcoholic, they don't get it. You know, it's just not the same. You know, that one alcoholic talking to another, or as a friend of mine, Gary Kay, likes to say, two liars sitting down trying to sort out the truth. <laughs> and so, you know, that's part of the 12-step, right? That's kind of the first part of that. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics. And I love how it says tried, right? <laughs> you know, because, you know, the 12-step in the book, you know, talks about the fact that we don't like to declare anybody an alcoholic. It's because they're not going to listen, right? You know, I can't tell you how many people were telling me I had a problem with drinking. And I was like, okay, so? You know, you know do, do you realize what's going to happen? Yeah, so? You know, that's kind of the way I looked at it. It was like, this is going to keep going on. There's no way for me to stop this. And so, but that being able to talk to another alcoholic, you know, and to hear that they found some solution to this absolutely baffling disease was just amazing. So, yeah, so here I am, right? Now I'm a disbarred lawyer, um, you know, with an accounting background who had been found, uh, you know, guilty of stealing money from my clients, about $50,000 worth. Um, so, again, if this world was fair, I would have probably just gotten out of jail. Right, because they should have charged me with two counts of grand theft, and you know somehow I was able to when the house went into foreclosure, I was able to sell it out the, right at the last week, out of foreclosure, use the proceeds from the sale to pay off the clients, um, but that didn't matter. I mean, the, the charge would have still been the same. I should be in, I should have been in jail. And they they never charged me. I don't know why. Um, but there I was, right. So now, you know. I can't find work. There's nothing I can do at this point. You know? So my first year of sobriety, I couldn't find anything to do in the way of work. And that was actually one of the greatest gifts I'd ever had. right? Because it gave me the opportunity to actually do this thing. I don't know, quite frankly, how people get sober that have stuff. Right? <laughs> I just, how do you do that? Right? If you've still got a watch, why are you not drinking it? You know? And so, you know, when I came in, I used to joke about I didn't need a keychain because I had no keys to put it or anything to put a key into. You know, it was just I had a bag of clothes that I had, you know, kept with me. Kind of that was it, a garbage bag full of clothes. And so for me, you know, when you start to look at this grand bargain that we have with God in this deal, right? We give him our will and our lives. And then God takes care of us, right? My side of the bargain was pretty slim, right? You know, I was giving him a pocket full of lint, and he was giving me an opportunity to a brand new existence, a brand new life. And so that's kind of what I want to start with in terms of talking about how we practice these principles in all of our affairs. Because I had that opportunity. I had this great gift that allowed me then to really jump into this, you know? A couple of months earlier, I had wanted to die. So 
everything I had was on borrowed time. You know, we were, I was talking with uh, someone else a little bit earlier as I got here, and we were talking about you know, the idea of retirement. And I said, you know, retirement is not going to happen in my world because I honestly believed I would be dead by age 45, and I did all of my financial planning around that. And so, <laughs> and so the financial planning looked like you, know, you don't pay bills, you bounce checks, you don't pay taxes, you know, and so I'm still cleaning up the wreckage of that past. Um, so, you know, I like to tell a story that gives you a little bit of an idea about how this, you know, incredible program will work. So it had been about a year after I had gotten sober and looking for work, you know, and I, you know, I would go to a job that I thought, you know, they've got to hire me and they would look at me and they'd say, you're, a, you're an accountant and a lawyer. How long are you going to be here? Right? That's just crazy. I don't know what you're looking for this job for, but go, get away, you know. And of course, it didn't help much that I wasn't telling anybody the truth yet at this point, right? So I hadn't really explained to him why it was that an accountant and a lawyer was wanting to pour coffee, you know. That's, that wasn't, you know, so they couldn't quite figure that part out. Finally, I got an opportunity on a job, and this was just about, that would have been about um, one year into sobriety. And it was to be an executive director of a little trade association, Right, the mortgage brokers. And so, you know, I'm getting ready to go in for the interview, and I'm talking with people in the program, and I'm like, I don't know what to tell these people. Right? I have no idea what to say. Because, you know, obviously the truth isn't going to work. Right? Because if I tell them I'm a disbarred lawyer, that I stole money from clients, right, they're going to give me their checkbook? That's not happening. <laughs> um, and, you know, the people were like, no, you got to tell the truth. Right? Honesty, our first step. You know, I had just gone through inventory where I had found out that honesty was important. <laughs> that that was a character defect. And so, you know, this was something that I realized that I was supposed to be doing. Right? But, you know, that sixth step is, is kind of a bear, right? I had to really want to change, and that wasn't going to happen yet. And so, but they were, they were telling me, just tell them the truth, right? And so this is my sixth and seventh step story. So I get into this meeting, you know, with this, you know, search committee for this job. And the question that I know is going to come up, comes up. Why do you, an accountant and a lawyer, want to be an executive director of a small trade association? Fortunately, I had prayed before I went into the meeting. I knew enough to do that. And out of my mouth came the words, because I'm a recovering alcoholic. And before I was able to find a solution for my alcoholism, I was disbarred as a lawyer. And now that I'm sober, I'm trying to get back into the workforce. I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> that, that was not me. <laughs> that was not the speech I had rehearsed. <laughs> and so, you know, I got exactly what I expected, right? Dead silence, right? They're like, <laughs> and they were thanking me for being really honest. <laughs> and then, you know, we had a few other questions and wished me on my way. And I said, well, you know, at least I learned what happened, right? You know, I got an opportunity to try to interview, got through that first time of being honest in that deal. They called me back for a second interview, this time now before the whole board. And I'm like, okay. So, but I get there and I'm talking to some people and I find out that the guy that I'm up against for this job is a sitting board member 
who's doing the job as the interim executive director. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm the other, I, I'm the other interviewee, right? No, we talked to another guy, but don't. This guy was better. You know? And so I figured that was what was going on. But again, I get into this board meeting, and the same question comes up: Why do you want this job? I give the same answer, and you know they're like, quiet again. <laughs> and you know, then the next thing I know is I get a call later that day. They're offering me the job, and I'm like, I have no idea what just happened there. <laughs> you know, that was a pretty amazing deal. And so, in typical form. They have a cocktail party to welcome me aboard, <laughs> which I thought was classic. And I'm at the cocktail party, and the guy that was the head of the search committee came up to me and says, oh, by the way, I got 21 years. So that was, to me, that sixth and seventh step, right? You know, I didn't have the courage myself. I wasn't ready to be honest. I wasn't ready to actually give myself to this program. As much as I wanted to, I couldn't do it. I was willing to, but I didn't have the courage, right? And so I prayed to God, and God gave me that strength. God gave me that ability, and then he was there to protect me. He was there to make sure that this thing came through. And so I got the job. I was able to, you know, be the executive director of this association, kind of get back into work, and, you know, things went on from there. And so part of the other part I want to talk about, and I was talking with Brett a little bit about this before also, is these are the principles that I was taught in this program. And as you'll hear, as I was doing these things, as I learned to work this way, I found out that they served me in so many ways that I couldn't even imagine. One of the ways that it wound up serving me was, you know, when I went to try to get my license back, the things that I had done, my license to practice law, the things that I had done were things that they relied on in determining that I was a person worthy of the trust of being a lawyer again. It wasn't stuff that I would have done on my own. These were things I learned in the program. These were behaviors that I had. So one of the other things that happened then was after a couple of years of sobriety and uh, being, uh, you know, working at the executive director's job, another friend of mine came up and asked me if I would be willing to serve on a nonprofit board. I'm like, okay, yeah, what, what is it? And it's the hep C connection. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. You know, I don't have hep C, but certainly know enough people that did, you know, and it's, especially, you know, with all the cocaine I was doing at the time, you know, that was something that was prevalent. Um, and, again, it was my first opportunity to kind of go in and try to practice these principles. Now, when I talk about the principles, you know, we have the principles of the 12 steps, and maybe I ought to just, you know, jump back here a little bit. When this gets boring, you know, and you guys are eating, that'll give you something to do. So, but anyway, so, the, but the, so I've got the, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the 12 concepts. We've got 36 principles that we live by in this program. And I would recommend highly, if anybody hasn't done the traditions with somebody, like you do sponsorship, you sit down and do it, go through them, talk about them, see how they work in your life. And also with the concepts, do it. It will change your life. You know, I understand we have to be out of here by midnight, so I'll get around to that around 11 o'clock or so. <laughs> but the, um, so all of these principles apply in this process. And so one of the things that I realized when I was on the board of the Hep C Connection was that upside-down triangle should apply everywhere. 
right? This idea that, you know, we turn this thing over. And so as you're in charge of something, you shouldn't be at the top. You should be at the bottom. And the idea there about being at the bottom is, is that you want to support all of those other people above you to be able to achieve and to be able to thrive and to be able to love their job. And that's what your job is. I got a chance to try it out, and son of a gun, it worked. You know, we had this really difficult time uh, because of the funding shortages that we had from some other reasons, and we all got through it because of the fact that we used the principles. Now, the other people in the office didn't know I was using AA principles on them. You know, you don't have to go out and throw that out there on the table. But, you know, it's just the way we act. It's just the things we do, um, the way we behave makes those differences and they can see that. So, you know, the other thing that I was taught is that, you know, we're constantly of service, right? Which is that when you have an opportunity to be of service, you say yes. So one of the other things that came up was a uh, club that I go to, the edit club. You know, there was a position on the board that was open. So I ran, I got elected. There were three openings, three of us ran, that explains that. Um, and so, but in the meantime of that, you know, I became the treasurer of the club and, you know, at the edit club, we actually have some cash around and, you know, got to be the president of the club also, which was a really interesting time. Just as a side note, I was the president of the edit club at the time that the, uh, clean indoor air act was passed, which was the one that makes it illegal to smoke indoors. That changed AA. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't remember that, uh, it was a monumental shift in our fellowship. And uh, so those were interesting times. You know, patience, love, and tolerance being our code was one of those things that I had to learn because, you know, the people that like to smoke in meetings did not want to stop. Um, and so it was quite difficult to explain to them that we didn't have a choice. That was now an outside issue, you know, in accordance with our 10th tradition and that we simply obey the law. And so, you know, we stopped all smoking in the club and within 25 feet of the door, and, you know, somehow we got through it. The club survived. We'd lost about half our membership, though. You know, this is what happens in AA when there's you know, change, which I'm sure we're going to see as we start talking about the preamble and the change that was made with the preamble as that goes on a little farther. So I don't know if you guys know that, but... Uh, for the first time, we've actually reworded the preamble. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how AA deals with that. You know, again, as I was talking earlier, you know, it's um, two things alcoholics can't stand, and that's the way things are and change. So, so anyway, so yeah, so I got to be in charge of the edit club. I got to have my access to the bank accounts there. I was on the, you know, in charge of the Hep C connection and their bank account. So all of these things were opportunities that I had when the time came for me to try to reapply to get my license back. And again, that was kind of an interesting deal. So when you get disbarred, besides all the great fun about it, you know, so people that worry about their anonymity when they come into the fellowship, I didn't have that problem. The Supreme Court had issued an opinion, which they published, which found me as an alcoholic and a thief. 
And so that was pretty much out there for anybody I knew who was a friend of mine got to read the entire story of exactly everything that occurred. Um, and of course, you know, then when the internet, you know, became really popular, you Google my name and that was the first thing to come up. And so it was quite, you know, exciting. <laughs> but, <clears throat> so anyway, if after you've been disbarred for eight years, you're allowed to start the process of coming back if you want to try to reapply. And, you know, I didn't think I'd ever want to be a lawyer again. I just didn't think that sounded like fun. I hated it while I did it. You know, the practice of law, I used to joke with another friend of mine that it'd be a great profession if it wasn't for clients, other lawyers, and judges. <laughs> you know? And so I just I didn't believe I ever wanted to do that again. I had gotten myself back into lobbying, and again, that's a whole different story as well about this program. But, you know, it was like, but all of a sudden I realized that I had amends to make. You know, I had an amend to the profession that had to be made. I had an amend to my family, specifically to my dad, who was an attorney in town, who was the, you know, the, um, you know, the senior partner of a very prominent firm in town. And, you know, was also a very public figure. He was a senator. And so, you know, it was one of those things that dragging his name through the mud was, you know, really unfortunate. And so there was like, these are things I probably ought to consider, you know. And plus, to be able to show to other attorneys who might be having these types of problems that there could be a future, right? That you don't have to just give up at this point. And so... You know, I went to check and see what the requirements were, and the first thing is, is that I had to pass the bar exam again. Now, this is 25 years after I had taken it the first time, and in that intervening 25 years, I had filtered the entire vodka production of Finland through my thinking cap, <laughs> right? So I don't know how it is that I'm going to recall or retain anything. But again, there's God, right? So I take the bar exam, and I pass, I don't know how. There's no reason that should have happened 25 years after getting out of law school, but it happened. And then the process was that I had to convince uh, the Supreme Court of Colorado that I have been rehabilitated. And it was everything that this program had taught me that allowed me to show you that, that allowed me to show them that, you know, that I was trustworthy, that I was reliable, that when I said I was going to do something, I did it, right? You could rely on my word. You could rely on my actions. And so as a result of that, they issued another opinion, uh, readmitting me to the practice of law, just about exactly 10 years after I was disbarred, which popped right back up to the top of the Google search. And so when you put my name in, now is my readmission opinion, which was still bad because they redid everything that I had done before, <laughs> talked about all of that stuff. So, And just as, you know, one last little dig, you know, so about five years after that, um, the chief disciplinary judge for Colorado wrote an article about how, what you have to do to get readmitted as a lawyer who had been disbarred, and he used my case as his example, which again brought that right back up to the problem. <laughs> but, you know, I can tell you honestly, I have never been harmed by that. I have never been harmed by the fact that my name shows up that way. So, <clears throat> again, you know, we, we learn this, op, our, this attitude of service. We learn this idea that it's not about us. You know, when we do an honest third step, right, 
The rest of our life is none of our business. And so we do those things that God puts in front of us. And so, strange enough, um, I start serving on Supreme Court committees, dealing with ethics. <laughs> you know, the disbarred lawyer is now on the committee. And so one of the things that I got a chance to do was to go to Beijing. The Chinese government was interested in trying to figure out what they should do with their attorneys that were having drug and alcohol problems, and they had no clue where to start. And so I went with a committee of the Supreme Court to Beijing uh, to meet with them and to give lectures on getting recovery as an attorney. Incredible opportunity. You know, it was just fascinating. But those are the kinds of gifts we get, right? And when we, when we practice all of these principles, you know, the, all of that service I was doing on those committees for the Supreme Court, I couldn't make any money doing that. It's all volunteer, right? But all of a sudden I get a, that other opportunity. God comes in in another direction and gives me something else. Now, as I talk through all of this stuff, right, you know, I'm not going to talk about AA service because everybody, I think, is pretty good about applying these principles inside the rooms. So I really want to talk about outside Right, about, you know, the, the book says a more important demonstration lies outside in our respective careers and households. And that's where it really gets tough, right? Because it's really easy when we're around like-minded people who are constantly reinforcing this way of thinking and this way of living to be able to stay that way. Some of us lose it when we walk out the door. If you look on my car, you will see no circle and triangle anywhere on it because my program goes to hell when I get on the highway, you know. So, <clears throat> you know, there, there is no perfection here that's not, you know. Uh, I try, I try. You know, maybe I really need to do a six and seven step around that too, but eh, I don't know. So anyway, you know, I like talking about, you know, how we practice this in our, you know, business and how we practice it at home. So kind of stepping back again, you know, when you look at the steps, the traditions, and the concepts, right? So the steps taught me, well, the, the, the fun way we like to say it is the steps kept me from committing suicide, the traditions kept me from committing homicide, and the concepts keep me from committing genocide, right? <laughs> but in reality, what it is, is the steps showed me how to turn my will and life over to the care of God, right? Traditions show me how to show, turn relationships I have every relationship that I'm involved in, whether it's with a business, an entity, an individual, a wife, a kid, shows me how to turn that relationship over to the care of God. And the concepts show me how to show, turn institutions over, you know, conflicts, larger items over to the care of God. And the way that all of them are set up is really cool, right? So in each one of them, the first of each is the problem, right? I was alcoholic and could not manage my own life. AA recovery depends upon unity, right? If we don't stay together, we will certainly die, right? How do we maintain the voice of Alcoholics Anonymous when we are this diverse and this widespread, right? How do we stay together as a fellowship? Those are the problems. The solutions are, came to believe that a power greater than myself could return me to sanity. Rely on God, find God. Second tradition, right? There's only one ultimate authority, a loving God as he expresses himself in our group conscience. And then finally, in the co concepts, it's like for all intents and purposes, the conference becomes our effective voice. And hopefully, at that point, God steps in like a group conscience and continues to direct us. And then the twelfth of each of them 
is kind of the wrap-up, right? Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, right? Tells us what the goal was, what we did. The 12th tradition telling us that, you know, uh, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. And the 12th concept, giving us the warranties, talking about the limits on what AA service ever will be, that all will ever be as a service entity, and we will not be the direction of an alcoholic group. And so you look at that, and it's kind of a neat way that they're all set up, and we can kind of see all of those. So, again, when we're talking about relationships, I'm going to switch over now and start talking about home stuff, right? I start looking at traditions for that. And um, so when, you know, my wife and I are at home with the kids and stuff like that, you know, we have to worry about what God's plan is for that household, right? Unity is our ultimate goal. You know, how do we keep this together? How do we keep God in charge of this? And so that's not that easy, right? Because we got kids that aren't in the program, you know, and other people that we deal with. So we kind of have to do it quietly, you know, a little bit under the table. But again, when I'm making a decision about the household, it's not what's good for me. It's not what's good for my wife. It's not what's good for the kids, right? It's what's good for the unity of all. What's good for the overall entity, right? Same decisions we should be making at work, right? When we're at work and we're saying to ourselves, what should I do here? It's not what's good for me, what's going to look good for me, how is this going to advance my career, how am I going to get the pay raise out of this, right? It should be what's good for the business, for the whole entity, right? Because at that moment, you're taking care of everybody that works with you, right? That action of love. Um, and so, yeah, so we do that at home, right? And sometimes it's what I want, sometimes it's what my wife wants. Sometimes it's something none of us want, right? But it's, that's the way we start to look at it. So then you get to that second tradition, right? And we honestly try to do that. We honestly try to remember that God has to remain in charge. Um, I remember when I first proposed to my wife and I said, <clears throat> now keep in mind that you're never going to be better than third in this relationship. <laughs> that didn't go over so good. Uh, not what a newlywed wants to hear. But again, like the book in the back of the story says, right? You know, God has to be number one. AA has to be second. And then we can come third. And we've got to make sure that we maintain that in the way that we do things. We've got to make sure that we constantly rely upon God to give us guidance and direction. So then you get to that third tradition, right? Which is that the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. Well, that one seems like it might be a little hard to apply in the household, right? You know, because I can tell you my kids are no, have, have no desire to stop drinking. That is not where they're at yet. Uh, I have a feeling someday they will be, but they're not there yet. So I don't think that's what that tradition really says. What I think that tradition is really talking about is we take who God puts in our life. As a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous, we take those individuals that God gives us. I don't know how much we really have to go out and search for alcoholics any longer. We have friends that bring them to us. But that third tradition talks about the fact that we take you no matter what. We don't care what you bring with you, right? If we can be helpful, we're going to be helpful. 
Now, you juxtapose that with the fifth tradition, right, which is that we have but one primary purpose, and that's to carry our message to the alcoholics who still suffers. And that's, to me, a whole idea of humility. I know a lot of times you'll hear people talk about fear with that tradition, right, that we're worried about AA losing its voice, losing its focus, losing its center. I don't think that's a problem. We're never going to do that. Um, what that's about is the fact that we need to remember where we can be helpful, right? One alcoholic talking to another. You know, I like to talk about the idea that, you know, this alcoholism, what it does in my brain, what it does with the phenomenon of craving is so different, so unusual, that normies can't get it. It's like trying to describe the taste of chocolate to somebody who's never tried it. Where do you start? It's kind of like coffee, but not, you know. You know, how do you, where do you go? If you've never had chocolate, there is no way to describe its taste to you. And that's the same thing with alcoholism, right? When we try to explain, I know my kid had a basketball game, and I know I promised to be home, but I wound up getting drunk and sleeping behind a dumpster, right? You know, it's like, we understand that. That makes sense to us. To them, it's like, why? Why would you, you know? So, again, so you kind of look at those two, right? So we're, we can help alcoholics. I can tell you that I did a lot of cocaine, right? And I did a lot of cocaine because cocaine kept me awake so I could drink more. I didn't like cocaine. It, the effect of it had nothing other than the fact that it, you know, allowed me, it was kind of powdered, sobered me up. And, but I can't help a coke addict. I can't help a crack addict. I don't know what they go through. So that's what that fifth tradition to me is all about, that the loving thing is to find them, to help them find the fellowship that will be able to help them. Because, you know, my ego would want to tell me that I can do it all the time. I can help everybody. But, no, I, I need to remember I can't. Right? So then we get to this fourth tradition, right? The right to be wrong, right? That, you know, each AA group should have, you know, to, but its own group conscience is the only thing that should be in charge. And that's kind of a big one, right? Because that one also plays in with the concept on the right of decision, right? And what that really comes down to is that when I'm given something to do, right, I get to decide how to do it. So to me, the best example of this in our house is the dishwasher, right? Because I load the dishwasher... And my wife looks at it and goes, what the hell did you just do? <laughs> Pulls it all out, puts it all back. Now, I am convinced that my loading of the dishwasher, everything would have gotten clean. But I can also tell you that I don't know. <laughs> it's never happened. <laughs> so, but that's what this is about, right? Which is this whole idea that you know, we have to learn, you know, how to trust others, to let them go, to let them experience for themselves, let them make mistakes. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, as a fellowship, we learn more from our mistakes than we ever do from our successes. You know, we always grow bigger and get better from those things than anything else. And I think that's true in our household as well, and also at work, right? In the law profession, we've got a saying that I love, because it's kind of along these lines, right, which is that, you know, you get, you know, intelligence from reading the fine print. You get wisdom when you don't, you know. And, uh, you know, so 
But that's along these lines, right? When you make these mistakes, when you miss those things, when you screw something up, you know, what we learn out of that is valuable. And that's tough with kids, right? Because how do you let your kids make those mistakes, right? Dad, I want to be a drummer. Okay, you know. You got to let them go. Give them that chance. Let them find out where that takes them. And that's a tough thing to do, but to me, that's what that fourth tradition talks about. Okay. So then we get the sixth tradition, right? Which talks about you know that we don't you know you know support or align with any outside enterprise or facility. Um, and again, for us, what that means is. You know, we need to be careful about, you know, what it is that's the family pro assets, right? What's our function here? What are we using it for? If one of us wants to go out and spend it on something, we need to make sure that it's in line with everything else that we're doing, right? Is this really God's will? Is this for the unity of the family? So what that kind of means is that I don't get to go out and contribute a whole lot of money to a political cause that my wife would necessarily agree with, right? We've got to talk about that. We've got to make sure that we, you know, deal with these things. And again, the idea there is not so much because when I'm doing that, it's almost always that I'm an ego, right? I'm trying to prove something or I'm trying to, you know, stand out or look good, you know, that image management. And so, you know, hopefully I can avoid that if I start following that sixth tradition. Now, seven and eight, I love because to me, they're the flip side of the same coin, right? So seven says that each AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. But what that really means is, is that we should take care of our obligations. We should take care of our debts. We should make sure that we pay people for what they do and that we're fair with people, right? And then you've got that eighth tradition, right? Which AA should be forever non-professional, right? But we can employ special workers. Well, for me, what that means is, Everything we do should be non-professional. I understand why Bill wrote it the way he did. At the time Bill wrote the Eighth Tradition, there were people all over the place that were really mad about the fact he was making money, that he was getting book royalties, and that he was working at the general office. And so he had to create a distinction to stop the fight. So he drew that bright line and said, 12-step work isn't paid for, but everything else can be, right? Well, for me, the spiritual side of this is I should be doing everything for free and for fun because you're all God's kids and I love you, right? I shouldn't be doing it for money. I'm going to get paid, right? That's going to happen. But I shouldn't be doing it because of that. That shouldn't be my prime function. So in my law office, the way that I do this is I don't concern myself whether you have enough money to put money in my trust account or whether your case is good enough that I'm going to make money at the end of the day, right? My sole question is, can I be helpful? And so there's a lot of cases that I have where people have a lot of money and they want to vindicate some cause, and I'm like, I can't help you. This is not going to be helpful for you. If you go to court on this, you're just going to continue this wound. You're going to continue to infect it. You're going to make it worse and worse, and I will be no part of that. I know they'll find another lawyer that will do it, but I'm not going to do it. Plus, I help a lot of people, and I can't ever make a dime off of it. Right? Just, you know, but that's not the point. The point is they needed help. 
And I can tell you that somehow it works. Somehow God continues to have money flow into my life in ways that I've never expected. You know? So like one example was a couple of years ago, we got a letter, a certified letter, from Anadarko Petroleum. And we're like, what, what did I do to them? <laughs> so open it and looked at it. And son of a gun, if they didn't trace some mineral rights from a farm in Ohio to my wife. And it turns out we own 10 acres of mineral rights, and they want to drill. I was like, well, that's a strange way to do that, God, but okay. <laughs> but, you know, that's weird stuff like that happens, right? Or that, you know, I'll be sitting there, and I'll be really worried about a bill that has to be paid, and something will happen, and all of a sudden it doesn't have to be paid anymore, right? Like, no, no, we waive that charge. Don't worry about that. You know, God works in those ways. But what I love about this tradition, when you look at seven and eight together, maybe I could go back a little bit and talk about um, my overall view of this program. When I first came in, I was told that this is a very simple program. All you have to do is change everything. And I was like, ha, 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 ha. that's so funny. <laughs> you know, give me something that's going to help. But I found out that that was absolutely true. It's maybe the truest thing that I'd ever heard in AA. Because what it simply meant was every decision I had been making in my life up until that point was based in fear, right? How is this going to screw up? How, do I, how am I going to look bad? How is it that I'm not going to get what I need? I was terrified about everything. And I learned to switch that and only concern myself with love, right? How can I be helpful? Page 20 of our book has a little statement in there that says, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers, right, our very lives, right, our continued existence, our wanting to continue to breathe, right, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon, right, which means it's absolutely contingent upon. It has to be done or else it will fail. It depends upon our constant thought, not, not frequent, not every now and then, not when it's convenient, our constant thought of others and how we might help meet their needs. And to me, that's a very simple statement, right? I need to be motivated by love at all times. I need to find a way to be motivated that way. And so when I look at seven and eight, right, if somebody does something for me, if somebody helps me out, I need to make sure they're taken care of. Whether they want it or not, that doesn't matter. I need to make sure that they are taken care of. Sometimes that's money, sometimes that's another favor, whatever that is but I need to make sure that they're not giving me stuff, that they're not you know, trying to just do things that I can take care of. I need to pay them for it. That eighth tradition says that I shouldn't be doing anything for money. And what's beautiful about that is that we're never in this relationship out of fear. We're now in this relationship out of love. I'm lovingly trying to make sure that you're taking care of for what you did, and you're lovingly trying to give me services or help or effort, and neither one of us is acting out of fear that I'm not going to get paid or that I'm not going to get paid enough or that I'm going to look bad for leaving the wrong tip or whatever else that looks like, right? And so it's love that on both sides. The cool thing is, is that our general service office does this. So at the general service office in New York, nobody has to go in and negotiate for salary. It just doesn't happen. They do a survey of nonprofits of similar size. 
and they look at the jobs that those nonprofits have and what they pay their people, and they simply pay our people the same amount, right? Without ever asking for it, without ever asking for a raise, without ever demanding anything, we give similar compensation packages, simpler uh, vacation time, all of that stuff. So none of our employees have to worry about negotiating for their pay or salary. And I just think it's level wonderful that an organization of our size can actually do that. So, let's see. so um, seriously, how late did you want me to go? 7.30? Okay, so I don't, don't want to keep running on too much longer. But that gives you an idea, I think, about how it is that I apply these principles in my life at home. Um, there's another important part about eight, which is that, you know, if I really can learn how to do things out of love, right, then my wife and I can hopefully stop keeping score, right? So if I have mopped the floor, right, then she needs to do something else, right? You know, it's like, there's, you know, we have these equivalents that we should have between chores and whatever else. So rather than just doing the dishes because they're there and need to be done, awaiting the resetting of the dishwasher once I'm done with it, but, um, you know, once I could do those or just, you know, clean up something that's there, even if it wasn't my mess from lunch, just take care of those things. It's amazing how easy our life gets, right? And I don't need to point it out to her. You know, it's along those same lines about, you know, trying to do something nice for somebody and don't get caught, right? I can just clean up, just take care of that thing, you know, whatever that is, pay that bill. And never have to bring it up to her, never have to mention it, never have to rub it in. You know, oh, by the way, you know, cleaned up your toothpaste mist again. <laughs> right. And it's, you know, our relationship has gotten so much better as a result of doing those types of things from that eighth tradition. So. Anyway, so kind of, you know, as a wrap-up, you know, so you sit there and you start to look at how this whole thing works and how we get to use these principles and how, if you really look at it, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous provide me with a solution for everything that I run into, right? So we, I got here in time to hear about the 10th and 11th steps, right? And the 10th step is great in terms of going in and looking at it from, you know, our inventory side, but I would suggest you do something else on relationships. And that's kind of what I just did here. Walk through the traditions. Ask yourself, which tradition are you violating right now? If you're having a fight with somebody, if you're having problems at work, which one is it, right? If I'm really mad at, you know, Steve because, you know, he's always jamming the copier, right? Well, then that sounds to me a little bit like four right, because I'm trying to tell him how to do his job, and maybe some eight in there, right, because maybe I could just unjam it <laughs> and not have to go into Steve's office and go, <laughs> stop. <laughs> um, you know, so, but to, for me, I usually find the solution a whole lot quicker than that, right, to find that ultimate humility that tells me, you know, I'm not here to get recognition for what I'm doing. I am not here to try and live this ultimate glory life that, you know, I'm supposed to be entitled to. I'm here to do God's work, right? To be the spearhead of his ever-advancing creation, right? You know, and as Bill said in his book, right, you know, in, in his story, uh, you know, that if we failed to continue to enlarge our spiritual life through self-sacrifice and service to others, we won't be able to overcome the difficulties that will surely be ahead. 
And to me, that's such a simple thing, right? All I've got to do is keep thinking of others. How can I help somebody else? How can I help you today? Because I don't need to worry about my side of it. You know, if I need more money, God's going to give me another oil well somewhere, right? You know, that's just, I don't know how that's going to show up, but it does. And that's the beautiful thing of it. And here's what is amazing, is that we're the ones that get to see this, right? We're the ones that had the gift of desperation that put us into a position to be willing to try this way of life. You know, how many people do we see that are constantly still trying to manage their lives, still constantly fighting day by day to try and just get by, right? Who are suffering from the delusion that they can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of life if only they manage well. Right? So what's beautiful is, is that I am so grateful that I'm an alcoholic, right? Because I was out there collecting shit, right? Thinking, you know, as you guys were saying, that the next car, the next watch, the next whatever was somehow going to make me feel okay about me. And none of it ever worked. And at the end of my life, I would have looked back and said, what was this worth? What was this possibly worth? As a result of being an alcoholic and being exposed to the, 12, to the 36 principles that we get to live by, I've got to know what it is to love another human being. I never knew what that was. Right? If I was close to somebody, it's because you could give me something. Right? You know somebody that could help me. Right? It wasn't never about love. I didn't know what love was. I also never knew what it was to be loved because I was always assuming that you were doing the same thing. You were always out for me, for something from me. And the question was whether I could get more out of you than you got out of me. That was my whole life. But I learned how to love another human being and I learned what it was to be loved. And most importantly, I learned what it was to be loved by God. All of that would have been lost to me if I never would have been an alcoholic. So when I say I'm a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you understand why. I would go back and repay the price to get here five times over to get what I have today. And, you know, it is just a miracle. For any of you that are new, welcome to the good life. And that's all I got. Thanks. <laughs>